99 podcast episodes with William and Whitney. They're film critics, and that is cool. Something, something, I've got knees, and as never Take it! No, thank you. As fast as the fish Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. <laughs> Woo! My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN occasionally, and I wrote for TV Guide recently. TV Guide. Hold on. When was the last time you bought a TV Guide? That is a great question, it's, actually. It, it's been a while. I remember when those, uh, like, on-screen digital, uh, li- like, scheduled scrolls started coming with your mm-hmm. cable packages, so you could just look at that. And that was you'd my favorite up, channel. You'd end up watching that for, like, 30, 45 minutes. Just have infomercials scroll, uh, and trailers and stuff like, on it. Like, yeah. embedded in the schedule, and it's like, oh, well, something starts in 30 minutes. Well... Nothing I want to watch in that 30 minutes. I'll just watch the scroll go yeah. by. You ever, you ever like, oh, it's not, it only shows it to you in like half hour increments. So it's like your next two hours worth of content. Uh-huh. But you want to find out what's going to be playing at 1030. But it's 1020. Uh, but it's 823. So you might as well wait. And <laughs> just watch that scroll. Just chilling. And then you're like, yeah. it finally moves over. And you're like, yay! Here, here's the great thing about TV Guide. They would have... Clearly, they had somebody working, like writing the little film synopses that were broadcast on television, who just did not care. They were they didn't care about getting things right. They were yeah. clearly just bored in a back room somewhere, and they were cranking out these like fifty word synopses. And I remember there was a Mystery Science Theater marathon on Comedy Central back in the day, and they had to give synopses of the films. They couldn't like give the TV show synopsis every time. Yeah. And one of them was a Gamera film. And the, the synopsis, the plot synopsis, it's actually said like plot colon, giant turtle throws a rock at a monster. <laughs> that was the plot of the movie. I said, well, well done, TV Guide. How can I get that job? They used to have in the back a glossary of every movie playing this week on every channel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you just read, and, you would just, and I would just do that every single week. I would mm-hmm. scroll down. I would see all the movies I'd heard of but had never seen or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, no, that's on Cinemax at 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. Guess I got to sneak around in the middle of the night and <laughs> make sure my parents are asleep so that I can watch... Lair of the White Worm or whatever. <laughs> Something was vaguely lurid, mm. you know? A Lair of the White Worm is plenty lurid. Yeah, but it wasn't, like, porn, you know? No, it was, it just not. had nudity and violence, but, like, it wasn't something I was, like, supposed to be watching when mm-hmm. I was eight, so whatever. Um, anyway, yeah, so this is a movie review podcast where we mostly talk about TV Guide. Because yeah, um, I'm writing for TV Guide. It's exciting. It is exciting. Uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, uh, we are reviewing the new releases Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, Zombieland, Double Tap, Jojo Rabbit, The Lighthouse, and Eli. He of the eponymous book, I hear. Yes. It, and it's a, it's a prequel to the Book of Eli. It's all about how he got that book. The book was the Bible in the Book of Eli. Spoilers. <laughs> it's not a spoiler. It's revealed pretty early on. No, I'm kidding. And also, that's not what Eli is about. Eli is a new horror movie on Netflix. Mm. Uh, a lot of the movies that we're reviewing this week are some of the most anticipated art house films of the year. Mm-hmm. And there's also uh, a big horror sequel and a big Disney sequel. And let's get the big Disney sequel out of the way, shall Please we? Do. Now, um, I had a choice uh, whether or not to watch Maleficent Mistress of Evil, and I chose not to. 
Because I didn't want to. <laughs> I, I was not a big fan of Maleficent when it came out in like 2014, I think that one hit. Yeah, about five years ago. Yeah, and, and it's it was one of the slightly more creative in this recent wave of Disney reboots and remakes of their animated fare. Yeah, at least it had a point of view. You it, know? it had a different point of view. And, yeah. and it, Angelina Jolie played the part quite well, but I think the film was really ugly. I didn't like the design of it. Yeah. And... Uh, Although it sort of like had a few vaguely subversive elements, it still felt felt really like safe in a fantasy myth sort of way. Well, you're not wrong. No. Uh, to, to recap, Maleficent yeah came out about five years ago, give or take, and uh, it was a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story, specifically the Disney version. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original Sleeping Beauty Disney film is maybe my favorite animated Disney film. Yeah, it was 1959 that one came out? Around there. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it this... looks unlike anything else they were doing at the time. With this really bold 1950s design to it. It feels very 1950s in a good way. And one of the things I really, really loved mm-hmm. about uh, Sleeping Beauty... I loved Maleficent because she's a gorgeously designed character, and mm. she's so striking and powerful and, and threatening. and and She has the most agency in the story. Well, uh, mostly, but like, and I, I like her. I like mm. her as a character. Who I really liked was Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. Yeah. And it took me a while to really acknowledge that because I was like, ah, but Maleficent's so cool and evil. Mm. And then after a while, I grew up a bit and I was like, yeah, but I was always there for Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. I loved those characters. There were the three uh, fairies. Elderly fairies who were looking after Briar Rose, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Sleeping Beauty. uh, Uh, Princess Aurora is what they call her in the Disney version. And uh, yeah, so you know the story. Maleficent isn't invited to the christening. Uh, She is pissed off. Mm. She, and she's mo- in the in the animated film, she's motivated by spite. I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. enough. So she's motivated by spite. She curses the baby to die on her birthday when she's a teenager. She's gonna prick her finger on a spinning wheel, oddly specific, and uh, she'll die. Mm-hmm. And Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether are the other three fairies in the land, and they had already bestowed upon Aurora beauty. And I think kindness no, or something. It was song. The first, oh, yeah. The first gift was you're going to be beautiful. Uh, the other one was you're going to have a good singing voice. And I always wondered what Meriwether was going to give her before she had to like, yeah, undo the, then a Mal- curse. Maleficent said, okay, and you're cursed. And then the third one says, okay, fine. The, I was going to make I you the world's greatest racquetball player, but instead I'll, I'll find yeah, a way. <laughs> my gift is the gift of chainsaw juggling. <laughs> That would be amazing. Uh, but instead, she changes the curse. She can't lift the curse, mm. but she can change it. And so instead, you will fall asleep, and the only way to break the curse is with the kiss of true love. Mm. Cool. Her birthday approaches. She, she's sent off to, to live as far away from spinning wheels as possible, and she's living with her Aunt Flora Fauna and Meriwether. Mm. And um, they're heroes. They raise yeah. this kid. They raise her great. She's nice. She's sweet. They're, she's a decent person. They're kind of the main character. Uh-huh. They and and uh, the two dads. Yeah. Who are the, the, the two kings whose mm-hmm. kingdoms are going to be brought together prince by the... Stefan and I forget who the... Um, the... Philip. Stefan, Stefan and Philip. No, Philip's name of the prince. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I forget who Philip's dad is, but okay, whatever. Yeah, the, but the two kings who have a lot more character and a lot more at stake, the uh, the fairies are the ones who have to give up this daughter figure that they've been raising for 16 years, mm-hmm. and they've kind of grown very fond of. Yeah, just basically their daughter. And for Sleep, all Sleeping Beauty and Prince Philip are cardboard. They're like nothing. Yeah, they, well, they're, they're pawns in, some, in yeah. everyone else's game. So, 
Uh, Sleeping Beauty is. I, I think kind of appreciate that that all of these supporting characters, the ones carrying the story. Yeah, same here. I always, I, I think that's mm. a really interesting. And Aurora, uh, Aurora pricks her finger at the spinning wheel. She falls into a deep sleep, and uh, Prince Philip is kidnapped by, Malef- by Maleficent, who knows that he could kiss her and cure the whole thing. So she kidnaps him, and her plan isn't to kill him. Her plan is to keep him imprisoned until he's ninety years old, and then let him <laughs> let, go let kiss him, her. Let him go. Yeah, which is a great fucked up plan. <laughs> Love that. Um, and we even get to see him and like his horse who's also aged, like this old nag, and they're just sort of limping out of the uh, dungeon trying to go to Sleeping Beauty. Oh, brutal. Oh, kiss her now. And it's Flor- pretty great. And and yeah. Maleficent's there just sort of cackling, this is so great. You're gonna suffer so much. <laughs> Yay! Florifon and Merryweather save the day, they enchant Prince Philip's sword, Maleficent turns into a really cool dragon, Philip kills the dragon. Mm-hmm. Um Bob's your uncle, everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. It's a good movie, it's a good story, it all works. Um when the time came for them to do the live-action reboot, as they had already done with Alice in Wonderland and a few other films at that point, uh, they were like, okay, let's do something a little different. Mm-hmm. And instead of just telling the same story again, what if we made Maleficent the hero and we reinterpreted the story to say the version of Sleeping Beauty that we know mm-hmm. was a miscarriage of justice and actually mm-hmm. Maleficent was an anti-hero. And mm-hmm. Stefan, uh, King Stefan, was really the villain all along. All right. Okay, I'm with you so far. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> and what they ended up doing was they had them told a story in which Maleficent was a young fairy living out in the woods, and Prince and Stefan, who wasn't royalty yet, mm-hmm. uh, was a poor person who fell in love with Maleficent, and they were childhood sweethearts. And then when they were finally adults, and it looked like they were going to, you know, be together, mm-hmm. uh, Maleficent had been such a problem for the kingdom, like preventing them from cutting down trees and shit, mm-hmm. that the king said, "Whoever can like bring me." can kill Maleficent and bring me like her wings as a trophy Mm -hmm. uh, I will make the next king of the kingdom and Stefan was like okay so he poisons his girlfriend violates her physically (laughs) and brings back her wings and now he's king and Maleficent basically does her own version of magical version of Ms. 45 (laughs) this is Disney's there's a whole genre it's an ugly title but it's a whole genre called rape and revenge yeah um, and it's full of films like Miss 45, I Spit on Your Grave, think, Last House on the Left to a certain extent. I think I Spit on Your Grave was kind of like the one that codified it. Yeah. yeah like, that, been that's done considered before, the first but... the same way Halloween is considered the first slasher. It may not, there are others that come before it, but that's like the one. That yeah, people for whatever it. reason, that's the one that solidified it. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was, it was that one, but there were a couple others around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a disturbing genre on a variety of levels, even when done well, which frankly, often it's not. Often... Mm-hmm. Too often, uh, it, it's made in such a way that it's supposed to be a prurient thrill. And I think the better examples of the genre know that nothing about this is fun. Yeah, there was one that came out uh, the year before last called simply Revenge. Yeah. That tried to sort of drain the genre of its prurience and make it more about how a woman is wrong. That it was directed by a woman, I think, helped. Yeah. Uh, American Mary is another version of that a little bit. Uh, That one takes an interesting direction. Also directed by women also Mm -hmm. helps. Um, So the idea that Disney is doing a rape and revenge movie is incredibly subversive. It's really fascinating Mm -hmm. on a conceptual level. The problem is... The movie wasn't very good. It was shot very murkily. The CGI creatures are ugly to look at. Flora Fauna and Meriwether are okay. turned into these weird, like, lawn gnome-looking things. Mm. And they're buffoons, too. Like, they, yeah. they they don't have any agency any longer. And they're, that, like, slapstick characters. That's the thing that I think offended me the most. Was Your that favorite it, characters are now slapstick characters. It's not even that they're my favorite characters. Is that in an effort to turn Maleficent into a modern feminist hero, they felt it necessary to unmake the feminist heroes who were already there, and there were three of them. <laughs> and I just thought that was just a bizarre choice, and I was always mm. frustrated by it. Um... 
Because yeah, Floor Fauna Merriweather, that baby would have died a million times over. And the and the mm. actually kind of a funny idea was that Maleficent was like staring at the child, waiting for the curse to take place because finally he'll get a revenge on Stefan. But the baby wouldn't have survived to prick her finger if Maleficent didn't keep keeping it alive yeah. because the fairies were so dumb. Mm. So she ended up forming this really close attachment. And ultimately when Aurora did prick her finger on the spinning wheel, Maleficent was the one who was trying to break the curse and it ended up being Maleficent's love. That broke it, not right. some dude. Um, it's definitely not the worst Disney live action reboot. It's got an idea. There's yeah. Angelina Jolie's really good in it, but it's not great. No, we'll, we'll always have Beauty and the Beast and Alice in Wonderland to look down upon. <laughs> It'll be hard to fall that lower than that. Oh no! Now we have Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. As well, oh which yay! Is great. Okay, yeah, it's uh, rock stupid. A, another bottom of the barrel. This movie is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> So what is the premise now that we've okay. we've redeemed Maleficent? Okay, so we've redeemed Maleficent, but everyone needs to forget everything that happened last time for the story to work. All right. Um, it's been five years, and in what must be the longest courtship in Disney movie history, uh, Prince Philip has just now proposed to, to Aurora. Okay, so, so just, it's been five they're, years. They're and dating he, for five years. Yeah, which is All like, right. I'm actually like, damn, wow, restraint for Disney. That's pretty good. <laughs> Oftentimes it takes a day. That's pretty good. So uh, they're engaged. And we finally meet, because we didn't in the last movie, we finally meet Prince Philip's parents. His dad is kind of a, a nice king. He wants peace between humans and fairy kind. Mm. And uh, his mom is Michelle Pfeiffer. Awesome. <laughs> There's, so what happens is they invite Maleficent and Aurora over for dinner. And it's super fucking awkward. Because mm. Maleficent still doesn't like humans very much. And the humans are still really super shaky around magical mm. folk. So the opening is kind of fine. I'm with you so far, and there's a great scene at a dinner table where Angelina Jolie and Michelle Pfeiffer get to be catty to each other for about oh, five minutes. Oh, that sounds great. That I want the whole the movie to be that. Whole movie! Yes. Just nothing but Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Angelina Jolie being catty. Would have been great. But sure enough, Michelle Pfeiffer has plans. Uh-huh. And uh, she, in the middle, of, she, she basically goads Maleficent into pulling off a big power move, green energy everywhere. <laughs> and at that point... At some point, she stole the spinning wheel that pricked Aurora. Apparently, mm. it still has magical powers. And she pricks her husband, who falls into a cursed coma. Oh, jeez. And she's like, Maleficent okay. did this! And Aurora, who had been there before, immediately goes, Mom, how could you? And Maleficent's just like, the fuck? I didn't do a damn thing. Have you learned nothing? And Aurora's like, no, I've learned nothing! Because it's a sequel! And she's like, fine! So Maleficent flees. And uh, the queen's like, Lady Captain of the Guard who dresses in this very like very fetishistically prudish armor. It's it's an odd look. It's cool though. Like, All right. Some people are gonna dress as her for Halloween. All right. Um and she shoots her with an iron bullet as Maleficent's flying away, and she falls out of the sky. Wait, they've like flintlock rifles in this they, universe? They're they're developing them now. They're getting weapons of mass destruction under Queen Michelle Pfeiffer. Also, they have discovered that okay. there is a new kind of flower called a doom bloom. Uh, which only oh. grows on the on the the graveyards it's, of fairies. I was about to say that's my favorite Pokemon. 
The Doom Bloom. The Doom Bloom uh, can be like sort of mined and like you know ground up, and if the dust from a Doom Bloom comes in contact with a magical creature, that magical creature becomes whatever natural thing it was crossed with. Because in Maleficent, Arrow, every magical okay. creature is like a mushroom person, H- half or, or like a half tree, half person. So if if you throw a bag of this dust at the the Ents who are walking around and mm-hmm. attacking people, it just turns into a real tree. Okay. Okay. So it takes the creature out of them and turns them into a plant. Basically, yes. Right. And they're, they're forming all that. So she shoots so Maleficent d- out of the sky. D- doomsday plant dust. Yeah. All right. She shoots Maleficent out of the sky, and but before, instead of just dying, she's picked up by another Maleficent. Like, another creature just <gasps> like her. Oh, no! And they take her to... And this one's played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, who, I like D- him. Disney does not know what to do with him. He's one of the great <laughs> actors of his generation. Yeah, and he's playing... A Maleficent. Yeah, and turns out she's the the. Is he also dressed in like a gown and has the big horns and everything? He has the big horns. He has the he has the feathers and everything. No one has her cheekbones though. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then he takes her back to the kingdom of the fairies, which apparently she was the chosen one and should have been there all along. Whoops. So she, half but, the movie. In the last movie, she was already in the like the kingdom of the fairies. No, no, no she the kingdom of the her woods. kind of fairies. Oh, like she's her species. A, her species of fairy. Yeah, you know, she was the only person walking around with giant wings and shit. Uh-huh. Turns out there's a bunch of those. Okay. Yeah, and uh, they they <laughs> are they're they're trying to go to war with the humans. We're like, maybe we shouldn't. And so Maleficent spends half the film having mm. Chiwetelo Ejiofor explain boring things to her. Okay. She doesn't have much dialogue in the movie. <laughs> Just people explain things. A lot to of it the is. Main character. She has very little dialogue overall. It's weird. Mm. Meanwhile, Aurora is being groomed and have you know being made all prim and proper and unfairy like by Michelle Pfeiffer. But it all leads to a big epic battle. Of course, yeah, oh, of course, where it everyone's going to get killed and murdered. Oh, I hate that. Oh. I, I, I'm not even watching the movie, and I feel like I need a shot of gin. It's really, really trite. Like the mm. entire thing is really, really trite yeah. and frustrating. And there's good stuff in here, which is a shame. Like, like um, Elle Fanning plays Princess Aurora. She's mm. really good. Like, I buy her as, like, a regal person and, like, a love interest and everything. And she she can carry the movie. Uh-huh. Angelina Jolie, we know, is great. Michelle Pfeiffer, we know, is great. Mm-hmm. The Prince is a whole lot of nothing. Well, just like in the original movie. Yeah, so boring right, as hell. Yeah. It's fine. But it just, it makes no goddamn sense. And the further you get into the plot, the more you realize that all of this feels forced. None of this is a story that naturally followed. Like, we just didn't get around to this part or yeah. something like that. This is a natural extension of the tale. The one thing it kind of tries to deal with is how did we hear the story wrong? Like, mm-hmm. this is the Maleficent story you didn't hear. Well, how do we hear the wrong one? Uh-huh. And we find out how. Okay. And... Yeah. Okay. So wait a minute. So here's let me let me explain. There's some so much dumb shit in here. I'm trying to think about like where it comes from. I think the dumbest thing is there's a bit where they try to commit genocide against all of the magical folk, of and they course, put them yeah. all in a church together. Okay. And they're gonna shoot the dust at them. The the magic plant. The, the magic doom, plant. Dust. Doomsday plant dust. The Pokemon dust. And rather than just fill the room with it, uh-huh. they have retrofitted a giant church pipe organ. So that when Michelle Pfeiffer's, like, master at arms mm-hmm. plays the pipe organ, which it turns out she's great at it. She's just rocking out like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Whenever she hits, like, F sharp 
that's when the gas goes out. Oh, but instead of spamming the F sharp key uh-huh. and just getting it all done, she insists on doing an entire goddamn symphony, giving the Fae plenty of time. There's, there's no <laughs> reason for the subterfuge, is there? None. Uh, okay. Well, they, they need to trick him in there. But like oh, once man. it started, they know they're dying. Just, I, I'm not supporting you. I think you're doing evil things, but you're being very impractical about it. <laughs> there's just that one button. Hmm. Hold down that button. I'm reminded of we'd, be, the, we'd be out of here in 30 seconds. Instead, the, you're going to spread this out for 10 minutes? Reminded of the Bugs Bunny gag where Daffy wires dynamite to the xylophone. Yeah. And Bugs Bunny is to play the xylophone, but he keeps getting the wrong note. Like the one note that has the bomb attached to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um bum 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 no, do it again, you idiot! No, do it again! It's like this! And Daffy, of course, rushes out and plays it correctly and gets blown up. Exactly, mm. yeah. Um, the war is stupid. Mm. The fighting is stupid. And then it turns out that in order to... How are we going to cure Prince Stefan? Or, uh, not Prince Stefan. How are we going to cure Philip's father? So, okay. Well, the kiss of true love would do it, but his wife doesn't love him. Okay. Does anyone love him? Does his son love him? Apparently not. So an, an old unloved man just stays in a coma forever. Nope. They find a way out of it. And here's why it's dumb. The way they find out of it hmm. is so soul-crushingly simple oh, that it ruins the ending of Maleficent 1. Because the last act of Maleficent was all about how the curse was so powerful that there was no way to lift it. Even Maleficent couldn't figure it out. Right. But apparently it was super fucking easy this entire time. Oh, the, the, there's always a back door. Yeah, no, it's literally just break a thing. Oh, okay. Oh, jeez. Are you fucking kidding me with this shit? And then after the battle, after this giant battle, surprise, there isn't like a, a super miserable ending to this Disney movie. A ton of people die. Now, you would think, oh, maybe they'll use magic to bring them all back. Mm. No, they're all dead. They're all dead. They're all dead. However, ten minutes later, we're going to have a wedding. And everyone's fine. So it's a happy ending. And a lot of the fairy folk who had come to this land specifically for war apparently brought their kids. <laughs> I guess they couldn't find a sitter because yeah. the sitter was going to war as well, so you might as well bring them. Um, and it just goes to like this very fake mega happy end. This movie is stupid. <laughs> it sounds stupid. It's a lot of stupid for one film. Like It's a lot of stupid to put in just mm-hmm. one film. And I'm, I'm forgiving for the first one because for all its flaws, it was a little daring. You know, it had a point of view. It had an idea. Mm. This it wasn't, doesn't... wasn't executed well, but at least it had an idea. Yeah. I'll give you a few bonus points for that. This, no bonus points, no points whatsoever. It's kind of idiotic from start to finish. It's a waste of a lot of talented people involved. The production design is cool. The costume design is cool. There's a lot of talented people clearly working on this. None of them could come up with an interesting story. Mm. Or a story that doesn't completely torpedo the original. Yeah. So um, it's a whole lot of suck, and I would like to move on unless you have any final thoughts. I haven't seen the movie. I got no thoughts. I could have raised a question you wanted to answer. You're, ju- you're just making me grateful that I haven't seen it because there. Here, here's the thought I can add. Um, first of all, I, I hate this notion that Disney has in uh, trying to make reparations for their generations of sexism by creating this very superficial and very easily marketable uh like pop feminist type of character yeah, and, and like layer on layering on these pop feminist qualities onto a character that previously didn't have it as a way to repair the way that didn't have those things before. Mm. Like, um, bell is now like an inventor in the Dumbo remake. There were like the little girl wanted to be a scientist. Doesn't go anywhere. She no. still doesn't have any character, but now she wants to be a scientist. 
And that's supposed cool. to that's supposed to give us a little bit of feminist salve they for think an otherwise that's empty. Enough. Yeah, exactly. They think that's enough. They're paying just like the lightest type of lip service. There was a whole song in the Aladdin remake, a new song about how she's not gonna be silenced, not gonna be pushed around. A she wasn't getting pushed around before. She already had agency and was in line to be the girl boss. Uh-huh. And then after that she sings that song, she's immediately kidnapped and has to be rescued by the hero anyway. Well, so, on, to- on top of it all, the song about how I refuse to be silenced mm-hmm. is sung in her head and no one can hear her. Exactly. So she's already singing it in silence uh, they're they're doing it so wrong and pretty consistently too like, there's and a few exceptions the but. cheapest way to do it is what they did in alice in wonderland it's just to give them a sword just yeah, make make them a big phallic object they can hold in their hands that they can commit murder with yeah. and that's supposed to be the same thing as feminist strength i'm sorry you're whizzing it down your leg disney yeah Stop having these stupid battlefield confrontations. It's not all about battle. I mean, you're adapting all of these fairy tale movies that were giant hits that are icons of popular culture that people know and memorize mm. and understand. Even if they're not huge fans, we just know them. Mm-hmm. They're so, like, sort of pitch perfectly prototypical of how fantasy storytelling is done in that fairy tale milieu. Take a drink. <laughs> that. To re- when you decide to remake them, you have to add butch stuff. <laughs> like you have to add like muscles and war like and blood, killing yeah, and blood and smog. And, they, these films were giant tragedy. hits before any of that got got snacked onto them. Like mm. there's a tiny bit in Maleficent, but literally Prince Philip just throws a sword. Like it, it's over in an yeah. instant. Oh, in the original Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. The original Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, it's really quick. It's cool, but it's really quick. Mm. It's not the point. And he doesn't even throw it really. Yeah, he has. He's, he's, he's he tosses given, it and then he's it's guided given, through he's, the air. Yeah, he's given a sword and a shield by the fairies he just sort of waves them around he does a, a little bit of sword fighting so he's trained in sword fighting yeah but then at the last minute when the dragon's bearing down on him and he's got his shield and his sword a fairy enters the frame and says a poem and says you're the sword you go do your job now sword yeah and, and you're Prince right Hill, and Prince shit, like oh shit and like his arm automatically just sort of throws the he I doesn't forgot do about that. he doesn't do a damn fucking thing yeah like, like except for kiss her i guess but like he, he kisses her they, like, they danced in the woods once and that's enough to be true love all all prince philip did was dance and kiss no wonder i like yeah. this movie <laughs> um anyway it doesn't work but let's no. move on uh the other big sequel opening this weekend mm-hmm. is zombie land double tap Uh, Which is the sequel to Warm Bodies? People didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's and it's quite a bold direction it took. (laughs) (laughs) Seems to resemble that film Zombieland from two thousand nine. It's been a decade. Nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted it. But here it is: a sequel to Zombieland. Uh, Zombieland was a amusing and diverting film from 2009 it's it took very place, funny i would call it very funny it, it's it has a good enervating kind of uh, snide sense of humor that i appreciate yeah it's not amazing but i laugh mm. a lot and it's, yeah. it's well made and it takes place after the zombie apocalypse but told from the perspective of these sort of kooky quirky characters mm. uh, one, one of whom is played by jesse eisenberg his shtick is that he has a set of rules for surviving in zombie land he's not a badass He's not, you know, this this lone wolf who can take up weapons and kill zombies, although he is also that. But more than anything, he's just sort of a neurotic, regular Joe who has to come up with a list of, I think it's 73 rules Mm -hmm. that he has to abide by in order to survive in the zombie apocalypse. He teams up with Woody Harrelson, who is a little bit of a badass, but he's also a funny blowhard. Uh, He uh, runs afoul of a a pair of sisters who are played by Emma Stone and Abigail Breslin, and uh, they 
bicker a lot, but of course it turns out Emma Stone and Jesse Eisenberg develop a thing for each other, and they become the sort of Airsats family. Yeah. They kill a bunch of zombies, and then mm. everything turns out okay. Yeah. Uh... Same, all the same cast is back now. A decade later, hell of a cast. Honestly, that's yeah. a good cast for any movie. And there are a lot of fun ideas. I love the opening scene where, on the soundtrack, we hear "Master of Puppets" by Metallica <laughs> as they break into the White House. So they can hang out there because evidently it's really safe. Also, nobody thought to do that before. <laughs> well, there aren't a lot of people. I mean, let's yeah. be honest here. We There's one, like, enclave full of people we eventually run into in Zombieland 2. Mm-hmm. But aside from that enclave, like, the number of other human beings, like, uninfected human beings they run into mm-hmm. is single digits. Yeah. It's, there it's, aren't a lot of people left. So, yeah, these four people are a, a sizable part of the remaining population because there's four of them. Uh, I, I would think, though, that even if there are only 50 people left, someone would think to break, like live in the Taj Mahal, live in the White House, live yeah. in the Eiffel Tower, you know. Well, they get there and it's already been a little ransacked, but yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah they, they spend the first part of the movie uh, just sort of reestablishing their the, their family unitness. Yeah, being uh, domestic in the White House. Yeah, Abigail Breslin is not much older. She's yeah. uh, 18 in the movie and she is restless because she doesn't know anybody her own age she doesn't have any kids she can talk to mm-hmm. everyone else like Woody Harrelson has like become kind of a dad figure but he's a little overbearing and her sister has a boyfriend why can't I have a boyfriend mm-hmm. because we don't know anybody okay well that sucks <laughs> so she's unhappy mm-hmm. meanwhile Jesse Eisenberg has completely nested he he loves living in the White House and he is uh, completely in love with Emma Stone even though he's not the best boyfriend and uh, he has stolen the hope diamond in the hopes of proposing. Yeah, and by stolen, he means he found it at the way. Well, he found it. He found it because why not? What on the, yeah. money is nothing. They keep giving each other like really famous, priceless artifacts as mm. like gifts for Christmas. Yeah, they, they. One of the gifts is wrapped in a portrait of Taft. Like that's the paper. <laughs> like it's a portrait of Taft, but you can rip it. Nobody cared about him. <laughs> True. I, I I do love this notion that in the zombie apocalypse, you know, when there's no people, these things really are worthless. Like yeah. money has no meaning any longer. Yeah, there's a certain and there's, there's even a scene in Double Tap where they're just zooming down the road with a, like a machine gun mounted on the top of their car and they just shoot a big pile of money that's just on the side of the road. Yeah. It's like, it's why? It's not worth anything. Yeah, it's it's target, pra- target practice. Um, the, the plot kicks off when uh, Emma Stone, mm-hmm. upset that... Uh, her boyfriend wants to marry her, although really I don't. It would just be in name only. But mm-hmm. anyway, she's she's really against it. Yeah. Um. And Abigail Breslin, who mm. wants to strike out on her own and meet people, they run off. Uh huh. And uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson spend about a month moping around until they finally run into another person played by Zoe Deutsch, who is. Uh, really just a rising star. Well, She's Zo- so funny. Zoe Deutsch has has been on the rise for a while. She was in Everybody Wants Some. She's been in a lot of a lot of uh which is sort of an underserved role in that movie, but she like really brings a lot of energy to it. Mm-hmm. Um She no, was in that rom com everyone liked last year called Set It Up, which was mm-hmm. fine. She was one of the mm-hmm. better parts of it. Uh, she is acting next to Emma Stone and acting circles around Emma Stone. <laughs> Emma, now, to be fair, Emma Stone has sort of a steely character. She's supposed to play kind of a, a, a cynical badass, mm-hmm. so she doesn't have a lot of nuance to deal with. Whereas Zoe Deutsch's character is, uh, in the kindest way possible, a ditz. She feels like she jumped out of the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous. And yeah. yes, that is a compliment. <laughs> and like they, they see her like scuttling around in, a, in an abandoned mall and they fire at her and she's like, don't shoot, don't shoot. It's fake fur. <laughs> <laughs> like that's her first reaction. <laughs> she is so damn funny in this movie. Very funny. 
that it's a pity she's not in it more. Something happens partway through where she's just out of the movie for for a portion. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So basically, what happens is so Jesse Eisenberg hooks up with her on the rebound. She hasn't seen another person for ten years, so she's just she's like just horny. <laughs> she's just horny. She just wants to have sex with Jesse Eisenberg. And when he's just like, oh, I don't know, I'm just getting over a uh, uh, a relationship, and she's just like, listen, if we're not having sex, I'm going to have sex with the old guy. He's like. <laughs> Okay, let's okay, have some let's... sex, I guess. Fine. <laughs> and then literally that night, Emma Stone comes, comes back. back and says, Abigail Breslin is missing. We need to go to Berkeley, where she's absconded with a hippie. Uh, and, no, Graceland. And, or, excuse me, to Graceland. Yeah, the, the hippie his, is his, named Berkeley. His name is Berkeley. We have yeah. to go to Graceland to find her. And the, and the yeah. movie is a road trip trying to find the Abigail Breslin character. Yeah, because she is out there with a pacifist hippie and they don't have guns. Yeah, he, he doesn't believe in weapons. He believes in avoiding all conflict with the zombies. And they firmly believe that this is just going to get them all killed. Mm. I was I was watching this movie and I really didn't pick this up on from the original, but I feel like this one... Mm-hmm. And I, I realize that this is going to sound like super politicized or whatever. I do not even mean this in a disparaging way. It's just an observation. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a right-wing movie in a lot of ways. This oh, absolutely is a, It's it is. very much about a cohesive family unit, and it is very much about how if you don't have guns, you're literally not safe. Yeah. And in a zombie apocalypse, that's true. Mm. In an extreme situation, like a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, there, there, it's kind of an unassailable... I think that might... And I was thinking about it. Is this part of the appeal of the zombie genre is that all of these like sort of values we find outdated because we quote unquote live in a society Mm. suddenly become important because we're literally Mm. like, it's a life or death situation every day. Just waking up. It's actually an emergency. Yeah. And I was thinking about like, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. It's a minor thing. Oh, oh, definitely. It is. I've I've been saying for years that this sort of Lord of the wasteland fantasy is really part of the zombie genre. Yeah. Projecting yourself into a future where you, where the rules no longer apply. You can be a survivalist as strong as you want. You can fire guns and essentially people. You can essentially murder as many people as you like, and it's okay because they're monsters. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, that ultimate sort of uh, protective uh, philosophy in practice. Yeah. The zombie apocalypse will allow for that. Yeah. So, yeah, people want to go to these zombie entertainments, not because they're scared by zombies. Zombies aren't scary anymore. Not mega scary. I, I don't, they can't be. I can't think of the last scary zombie I saw in a movie. The, like a new movie, like not I revisited no, Lucio Fulci's or something. No, no, you know, no, no, no. I'm, actually, I'm actually trying to think of like the last mm. seen some scary zombies on TV. Yeah, that's like right. I, have, I haven't seen but, Walking Dead, so maybe there's plenty yeah. on on the Walking Dead. But uh, yeah. yeah, we're not going to see the zombies. We can't relate to the zombies. They're not sympathetic characters. Sometimes there'll be a twist, like Warm Bodies or like Fido, where they'll give mm. the zombies some personality. Right. But yeah, for the most part, they're just a mob that exists to be gunned down, to be chopped up, to be murdered. Yeah. They yeah. they represent every everything and every person you want to murder in on uh, mass. Yeah. It's a pretty dark fantasy. It is. It is. Um, and I think Zombieland because it's a comedy is you're able to swallow that a little bit better, but it's still in there. It's a, it's dark. There's no denying mm-hmm. it. Um, so and I remember when I was talking about how Maleficent two, it felt like they didn't really have a story. Mm-hmm. And I also remember how I said I would have been perfectly happy if it was just Angelina Jolie and Michelle Pfeiffer uh-huh. saying funny things to each other for a whole movie. Mm-hmm. That's Zombieland too. <laughs> like there's really not much to it, mm-hmm. but they didn't go overboard trying to fill it with a ton of plot. There's just enough plot to get everyone out of the door, mm-hmm. going off on new adventures, killing more zombies. And it's just kind of an excuse to hang out with these characters, add a few new fun characters to the mix. 
Um, uh, Rosario Dawson shows up in this one. There's a really funny uh, couple of cameos by Luke Wilson and Thomas Middleditch. Mm. Who, if that, if that part hasn't been spoiled for you, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's really funny. It's really funny. It it's, doesn't serve the movie at all. It's just no. sort of a bit in the middle. There's, you, there's, could, you could lift it out and not alter the film. This is from Rhett Reese and uh, Paul Vernick, who uh, wrote Deadpool and Deadpool mm. 2, and also the original Zombieland, and they're not afraid to go really meta. And sometimes it's really funny. And the whole Luke Wilson, Thomas Middleditch thing, that's really funny. You're right, it serves no purpose, mm. but it's funny. Yeah. One of the, my favorite, probably, gag in the whole thing is... Um, they actually thought this out in a way I don't think most filmmakers would have bothered. Zombieland took place in the zombie apocalypse in 2009, mm. and it's been 10 years. So that's the last 10 years of human history as we know it didn't happen in Zombieland. <laughs> so Trump never became president mm. in Zombieland. So they go, yeah, they break into the White House, and there's still a portrait of Obama up on yeah. the wall. So, like, okay, I'm with you there. You thought out that little detail, but then there's a bit where they're talking to Zoe Deutsch, and she's like, no, I have, I have ideas. I have this idea where you, you know, you, you need a ride, you don't have a car, you can like dial something up on your phone, and just a stranger comes and picks you up. <laughs> well, that's a terrible idea. Aren't they going to murder you? No, it's nice. They put candy in the car, and yeah. they won't murder you because we're going to have a star rating system. We'll give them low stars yeah, when they try to kill you. My parents always told me that if a stranger pulls up to you with candy in their car, get in their car. And they just call her an idiot. And in the audience, we know she invented Uber, and she was actually had a good idea. Uh, oh, or at least well, a money-making idea. I was about to say, have you seen what Uber's going through recently? <laughs> a money-making idea. Uh, a money-making idea. Mm. So... That's a joke that you can kind of only do in Zombieland. Mm. So I appreciate that they thought of it. Okay. That, it, it's a cute idea. Yeah, yeah. you're right. There's some good it's zombie the kills joke. in it. A few have never seen before. Mm. There's one where they, I'm not going to run it for you, but there's one where they all of a sudden flash to what's going on in Europe. That's a, that's a hilarious zombie kill. That's yeah. an amazing zombie kill mm. I've never seen in anything. And I can't remember any other movie doing it. Mm. Um, but yeah, this this movie uh, is really sniffy about pacifism and hippies. Yep. It's very bold about its gun forthrightness. Mm. And it takes place in an apocalypse when Obama was president. So yeah, it's a right-wing movie. <laughs> it is. For very much so. Whether or not the screenwriters, the filmmakers even intended it that way, that's the way it reads. But I don't find it particularly toxic. It's no, just, no, It's no. just, th that's the backdrop for it. Mm. Basically, this is an excuse to see these characters hang out together. I'm reminded actually of... Imagine if Smokey and the Bandit Part 2 was funny. <laughs> it's supposed to be, but all right. Like, like it wasn't funny. It was supposed to be funny, but yeah. it's actually like completely no laughs. And the plot is super contrived, just getting people out to do the same thing they did again for no particularly good reason. And all the new characters come in, and they're these really broad stereotype characters. Yeah. Like, let's be honest here. Zoe Deutsch is playing the stereotype dumb blonde character. Yeah, very well, I might add. But she's yeah. doing it well. Like, that's the thing. It's actually funny. Mm. So I'm gonna forgive that it's loose okay. and it's kind of contrived. I'm it, just, it, it just, I'm, I'm enjoying myself mm, enough. It's one of those films that felt like they were really kind of discovering it as they went, mm. and there was a lot of studio interference, and they had, were handed scenes sort of after the fact, or even while they were even shooting. It's like, oh, we need another scene here. Shoot this real quick, and so yeah, it feels slapdash in that studio sort of way. Mm. Like we're just gonna throw all these things together. It doesn't feel well thought out. It's mildly amusing. It's the kind of film you might catch a portion of on cable in a hotel room mm -hmm. and you'll get the same sort of satisfaction out of it. I, I, listen, if you, I'd say this is a good matinee movie. 
like yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't pay so, twenty bucks to see this, you, but I would pay ten. Something you, you you went to the theater not knowing what you were going to see, and you chose this one. You'll be fine. You'll, you'll, you'll have a good you'll, time. You'll be fine. Yeah, but there's it, there's well, absolutely nothing extraordinary about it. Yeah. If it's on Netflix someday, check it out. You'll have, I, you'll have fun. I'm hearing the screenplay and seeing the way the actors are say, saying the lines of the way the director is directing, and it feels like it needed to be a lot like snappier and snippier that they were coming up with something really sarcastic but they're delivering it in kind of a laid back lazy sort of way so yeah. the jokes don't always really land that hard yeah um it, it's a little too relaxed for its own good and i feel like the first one felt really tight i haven't visited it since 2009 but i seem to recall it was kind of tight uh tighter yeah it, at, it, at least it, tighter than this yeah um the, the, this this one needs a tuning yeah that's fair mm. but again funny and uh, we'll just let it go there. Uh, let's move on to uh, some... Actually, I'm, I'm going to cut this in the middle. All right. Because I'm going to do the new Netflix movie first. Okay. Just because we... Yeah, can, I, and I also have Because it's also so. really minor, and also it's full of stuff that's hard to talk about without spoilers, so All I right. can't go into too much depth. Um, suffice it to say, good setup, bad movie. All right. Uh, it is about a young boy named Eli. I'd say he's like 10. All right. Um, and he's got... A, an autoimmune disease. He's got one of those diseases that you can't leave like your house. You're like a boy in the plastic right. bubble. Um, good, good movie contrivance. Yeah, I've it's seen it, a lot of movies with that, oh yeah. that and disease, it, and it's there. a real thing. It's just very uncommon. Yeah. Um, and the movie opens with uh, his parents want to take him to see a specialist. They've put all of their money into this. They think finally we might be able to have a cure. There's a new uh, viral gene therapy, which is basically. Um, Basically, like they're they're going to be using CRISPR or something, and mm. uh, to turn his DNA against itself because like his autoimmune system isn't working. Um, so his body is going to fight the be- the starts of him that aren't working, and it's mm. going to make him weaker before it makes him better. But eventually, he'll get well. That's what he's told. He is brought to a creepy mansion in the middle of nowhere, thirteen thirteen Lobo Tommy Lane. <laughs> um, I love that. Um. It's from a, a Mickey Mouse cartoon. They've, uh, they've, uh, it's been retrofitted mm-hmm. uh, to be a clean house. Instead of having like a clean tent, mm-hmm. the whole house is like sealed off, and like the floors are covered oh, in plastic it's and everything. An, it's, an airtight home. Yeah, yeah, and you can't enter the house without going through a disinfection process. And there's right. only one exit. All right. Um, so I'm, I'm with you so far. It's, but it's, it's odd. But it's but a it's, mansion in the middle of nowhere. It's a, but it's yeah. It's also a mansion in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, there's great. fog everywhere. So of course, it's really creepy. <laughs> um, but the good thing is he's allowed to finally walk around and explore right. it, it this only really hit him within a couple of years so he remembers being able to run around and stuff and he dreams of it mm-hmm. but it's really frustrating him and pissing him off and he would love to be normal again so he says mm-hmm. um and uh so what happens is they all move they all go into this house and he gets his own room and uh he's allowed to wander around in the middle of the night for no good god damned reason like that's his wandering time is yeah, the middle of the night they, no there's no one watching him there's like there's like the doctor played by lily taylor cool all right i like lily taylor. a couple of nurses played by actors whose face i recognize but i couldn't tell you their names hmm. um and uh, and his parents and he's alone in the middle of the night and he's allowed to wander around looking for ghosts and mysteries and conspiracies and shit and i'm like after the first couple of nights when he says he's seen ghosts or he thinks he's starting to get paranoid and think everyone's out to get him. Oh, God. You'd think he, like mom would sleep in his room. So the premise is it's the boy in the plastic bubble. But what if the bubble bubble were haunted? Yeah. That's stupid. Yeah. Like, I, I was with you for a minute and then it gets dumber and dumber. The scary stuff uh-huh. uh, is um, 
the actual procedure itself. It's kind of like The Exorcist when she's like getting like the the spinal tap and everything and oh, trying to yeah, figure out what's yeah. wrong with her. So like there's this whole bit where they're like they need to like get into his bone marrow in mm-hmm. order to in- induce uh, introduce this new genetically gene, gene designed therapy, yeah. yeah this new genetically designed virus into his system. And um, they have to like put him down on a table, and they have to put a vice on his head so he won't move. Yeah. And it, it's just like, oh, that looks horrible. That looks mm. like a medieval torture device. And then they have to like y- they they numb him, but they're using this really ugly looking drill <laughs> to just literally drill inside of him mm. and like pulling stuff out. And, yeah, there are cranial drills, and they're electric. Yeah, and they've. I know what they look like. I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. No, this is at like the base they, of his spine. They've blunt, yeah. they have blunt tips, so they don't you know puncture your brain. Yeah, um, they don't look like drills. <laughs> well, they do now, yeah. and uh, yeah, and that's really scary. And it's fucked up, and his health deteriorates. And we're told that early on that like, yeah, listen, it's a lot of you know this is gonna even if it works, it's gonna put his body through a lot. It's not uncommon uh, to have some audio visual hallucinations mm-hmm. or at least bad dreams. Um, and so, yeah, we're just going to leave you alone in the house for most of the night and let you wander. Mm. That's a good idea, right? And so he sees a bunch of scary stuff. And, uh, when he starts finally putting it all together, when you start realizing there's more to this movie than meets the eye, it gets so fucking dumb. (laughs) Like, I couldn't believe how dumb it gets. And when you realize, like, what's actually wrong with him and how they're trying to, like, actually fight it using gene therapy, mm-hmm. you're like, that doesn't even make any damn sense at all. Like, there's no re- Why would that be a thing? <laughs> Why is that a thing? Why is that a thing? Why would mom and dad do that? Why would he do that? There's no... Fu- Why? And he just, it just... It starts off okay and just gets every other scene loses me more and more and more. Uh. So if you ever want to see a movie start off with an okay premise, mm-hmm. get a little silly, but still reasonably well filmed, and then just get stupid, <laughs> Eli's a good bet. Mm-hmm. That's all I'll say. I don't want to ruin everything because at the very least you'll have some surprises. But yeah, it's they're not good surprises. They're very stupid surprises. You'd be like, oh, it's, it's your birthday. I got you a present. Oh, that's nice. What's the surprise? I baked you a cake three years ago. Oh. <laughs> you can keep this. No, it's yours now. Jeez. Oh, crap. Thanks, Eli. Like, that's that's what we got. <laughs> it sounds awful. It's not good. Uh, tell me about Jojo Rabbit, please. Okay. Uh, Jojo Rabbit is a new film from Taika Waititi, the director of uh, Hunt for the Wilder People and also Thor Ragnarok. So he's got a, a bit of a weird filmography already. Hmm. Um, I didn't see Hunt for the Wilder People. It's wonderful. It, it's a wonderful it, motion picture. Yeah, it looks he's, great. He's done a <laughs> it looks like right right up my alley. I he's actually done a lot of coming of age movies. He did a 2010 mm. film called Boy, mm. which is delightful. I just re- I just watched it for the first time this week. It's really really incredible. Mm. Um, and uh, he also did a, a romance a romantic comedy called Eagle versus Shark, which I do oh, not, right. which yeah. I do not care for. I mm. find it very uh, uh, off putting and annoying. Um, his, he, his big breakout film, at least in America, was What We Do in the Shadows. Did mm-hmm. um, co-directed with Jermaine Clement yeah, from Flight of the Concords. Uh, who also stars in that movie. Along one with one, of, one of the funniest damn movies of the last decade. I, if you're making a top ten comedies of the decade mm-hmm. list, I, and What We Do in the Shadows isn't on it, we do not have the same sense of humor. <laughs> that movie's funny. It's, it's a mockumentary about uh, vampires in the modern world and how kind of 
ill-equipped they are to deal with the world and how bad roommates they are. Really uh, funny. About what bad roommates they are. You know, who, Whose turn is it to do the dishes? I did them 300 years ago. <laughs> well, they're really piling up. <laughs> There's a Nosferatu in the basement that they have to like feed rats every once in a while. It's, it's just... Brushes teeth for them. Yeah. It's so fucking funny. They run into werewolves on the street one evening and they have, of course, a rivalry with werewolves. <laughs> they have fights. They, they snarl and float up in the air at one another. It's so funny. Um, he has just a, a delightful sense of humor and a good grasp of the macabre. I think that's one of the things that made Thor Ragnarok kind of appealing. Mm. He he understood that there were some dark things here and he was making light of them. Yeah. Like the fact that the the Hulk had been living as a monster on a garbage planet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like I like yeah. Thor Ragnarok a lot. I think my only real critique with Thor Ragnarok well, it's I, the first and the last act can be chopped off, and the middle part is the best part. And the last act's fine. It's the first act for me because Thor: The Dark World left them in such a lurch in terms of like it's cliffhangers, like story and cliffhanger. Yeah. It takes like twenty minutes for the new movie to get started because we have to wrap yeah, up the, shit we don't care. And about. also they had to throw in a cameo which doesn't isn't needed at all. No, yeah, like, they, it, they do all of this plot right at the beginning, and it's all useless. And then he gets lost on a garbage planet. I'm good. I'm looking forward to his next Thor movie because mm. now he's got a clean slate. That's right. He can just can, do what he wants. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm excited about that. I hope mm. that'll be wonderful. I hope like blood and fire or something. Uh, love and war. Love and love, war. Love and thunder. Love and thunder. Yeah, because now Natalie Portman uh, gets the oh, is, gets the is, hammer. Is the Thor hammer? Yeah, yeah that's fine. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now he's made a kind of a, a satire that goes to fascism, mm-hmm. which is an interesting uh, topic for a comedy. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, the main character is a young German boy named Johannes. He goes by Jojo. And uh, the opening scenes show him at Boy Scout camp. But it's not Boy Scout camp. It's Hitler Youth. He lives in Germany in the 1940s. It's near the end of the war. He doesn't know that. And he's but adults are talking about yeah. like this this winding down and we're losing. Yeah. And uh, because he's only ten, he hasn't really seen the horrors of war. He doesn't understand what the war is or even what the Nazi Party is. Just kind of what that the Nazis are sort of like Boy Scouts. It's a camp you go to. It's a club you belong to. It's a neat uniform you get to wear. He's completely mm. bought into the propaganda to the yeah. extent that his imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler, as played by Taika Waititi. Yeah. And uh, he he's such a, a decent, gentle boy that his imaginary Hitler, although giving him sort of like encouragement in the fascist direction, mm-hmm. is also just kind of a gentle, genial guy. Yeah. Until you bring up Jewish people. Yeah. And, and then oh, he just gosh. regurgitates all the horrible stuff he's heard third hand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the, I find this a really fascinating way of looking at the way kids interpret interpret that kind of fascist rhetoric. Yeah. Or really, uh, any political rhetoric. Yeah, you, yeah. What you're, you, whatever you, you, you're raised you a, in, you uh, don't question, and you have no context for what you're hearing. So yeah. it's it, the only context you have is your kid stuff. If you live in an insular community and you're not exposed to a mm. wide variety of ideas and types of people, you just believe everything yeah. that you're heard, and that's a tragedy. And this is a story about what happens in like the most extreme of circumstances when that boy finds out that his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, mm. has been secretly taking care of a young Jewish girl, and she's been living in their crawl space. Yeah, and now he's got to deal with that huge revelation, and he doesn't know how to feel or what to think. Well, he, he knows that she's Jewish, so Hitler will appear in the room with him and say, "Oh, well, here's all of those myths you've heard about Jewish people. They have they have horns, and they sleep hanging like bats, and all these weird things that were actually part of the Nazi propaganda. Yeah, like they're not entirely human, and uh, and his own sense of decency, which just says, "Well, she's just sort of a." 
is just a, a girl who's kind of a little bit pushy because she's older because she's seventeen. Yeah, and he's a, and he's a, and he's a kid. He's on the cusp of puberty. She's a few years older than him. He, yeah, so, he quickly gets a crush on her. Yeah. Um, she's played by uh, Thomas and Mackenzie from Leave No Trace. She's great. Everyone mm-hmm. in the cast is really good. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Scarlett Johansson gives a career best performance. I it's she's, been a while since she's had a role this she, good. She's playing against type. Ordinarily, she's meant to play kind of these uh, steely characters, these non-human characters, mm-hmm. and I think she's best when she's playing non-human characters. <laughs> Uh, and I, I can't, I can't okay. like, well, just uh, just because she is so, uh, like, preternaturally inscrutable mm-hmm. that she can either play an inhuman character or somebody who's really detached. So you watch something like Ghost World where she's really cynical. She's really good at that. I would have actually loved or, to have seen her in, like, a re- if, not that they should remake Vertigo, but if they did, she'd be great in the Kim Novak role. She would. She'd be great. Inscrutable, at, steely. Exactly. But then exactly. you find out she has hidden depths mm-hmm. eventually. Right. Um, and yeah. here, she yeah, she's playing totally against type. She's actually really warm and approachable, celebrates life, has a cause. Uh, and she plays it with that kind of playfulness. Yeah. I've never seen Scarlett Johansson be playful before. I feel like I have, but it's been so damn long since she's had a role like this. Mm-hmm. Where she's, I mean, she'll get to quip as Black Widow, but it's just not the same kind of character. But, uh, again, that's, uh, she a, a, a she's real... kind of, in, I know she plays a human character, but she's inhuman. She's a superhero. Yeah, but like, this is um, a meaty character because she's mm. got to have that face. You know, she's got to like, her son is so young that she can't tell them that she's not a Nazi. Yeah. Because he would just tell his Hitler Youth group. Yeah. And she's well, waiting for him to be old and mature enough that she can talk to him about that, but she's trying to keep him decent he's, while also yeah. helping him keep the facade up so that they aren't murdered. Exactly. And that's a terrible situation. And that's the a- only person she can talk to is this young girl, and she reminds her of a daughter who died and everything, so she's got mm-hmm. a lot of baggage there, and it's a really good performance. And, yeah, it, and she, she's taking out, looking after this girl, but they're not relating in like a direct mother-daughter sort of way. No. They're relating like two adults who understand the truth in yeah. this world of lies and violence. They're the only t- they're the only people they can talk to mm. without putting on a facade, without mm. pretending to buy into lies, without trying to toe a party line, even with her own son. She mm. can be genuine. Yeah. And, and so their scenes with Thomas and Mackenzie are really heartbreaking. There's one really great back and forth they have where uh, Thomas and Mackenzie ask Scarlett Johansson, what's it like to be a woman? Yeah, to be an adult. To be an adult. And and just the speech she gives, it's this beautiful, very touching thing. Yeah. But it's all told in this very light, almost wispy sort of way, which I think serves the material. Well, it feels like the kind of, like a, like a, it's a fun coming of age movie Mm. against the worst possible backdrop. Yeah. And it's that tone that is incredibly difficult to navigate, where Taika Waititi, one mistake, even for one scene, one misplaced line of dialogue, Mm. and the entire thing could fall apart, because it could make Taika Waititi seem like he was making light of the Nazis and the Holocaust. Mm. And he's not. He's All of that stuff is taken really, really seriously. The jokes at the Nazis' expense are all about how fanaticism is stupid. Yeah, yeah. And it leads people to believe and do stupid things. And, and he's wise to cast a bunch of comedic actors as the Nazi characters. Mm-hmm. The scary, like the big, like towering, scary Gestapo guys, played by Stephen Merchant. Yeah. Who, who looks like a good scary Nazi. He could be in a... a Indiana Jones film, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but he's also a comedian, so he has a little bit of that that wink about him. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a Nazi secretary played by Rebel Wilson, and she's hilarious she's, and everything. Uh, Sam uh, Rockwell plays the leader of the Hitler, Hitler Youth Group, and... And he, he he's so good at playing, like, a slovenly, uncaring guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, that's his... 
So perfect for him. But I appreciate that, you know, we don't really spend a lot of time with Rebel Wilson or Stephen Merchant, but we do see that there's, they don't come right out and say it, but there's some subtext to uh, Sam Rockwell's character, and you realize that he doesn't really have a place in the Nazi party either. Yeah. But for some reason, he has embraced it. Mm. Uh, probably a well, survival because, mechanism, Yeah, well, you know? I was about to say, you have to, otherwise they'll kill you. Yeah, exactly. So when you find out, like, and you're going to have to, like... Put on your, you know, reading comprehension glasses mm. on that to realize what's really going on with him. But they're not, they don't hide it. They just mm. don't tell you. Um, and you realize that, like, yeah, he had to do this in order to survive. And that's an ugly, horrible choice, actually, that he's made. Mm. It's also a sympathetic choice. You understand why he did it. And uh, that's something that this movie gets. It understands that people do terrible things. Mm. Some people are completely I, unforgivable for it. I, Others I, are young and yeah. don't know better. And maybe there's hope for redemption. It's and it's all about uh, just the conundrum of living in a state that's gone mad. Yeah. Uh, if you live in a, a state where you have to pledge allegiance to wickedness, otherwise they will kill you. What is the moral thing to do? And Taika Waititi is making a comedy about that. Terrence Malick's new film is about that exact same thing. Oh, uh, that's not coming out till December. We'll, we'll talk about it then. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> but I can't wait to see that. But you can imagine what Terrence Malick would do with similar material. Mm. Um, all of this, of course, is going to a larger politic that's at work in America today. Mm-hmm. This is and about America. At work. And it's, it's uh, yeah. also well, everywhere. Uh, actually, that's not, to do with not just America, but yeah, the, there's this sort of rise of authoritarian, author, authoritarian leaders around the globe. Yeah. It's very, uh, is, it's very, it's very relevant. Is is incredibly relevant. So of course we're going back to Nazi Germany because that's when the fascists had a moment in the sun, as it were. Yeah, where they actually and, rose to power and, and nearly and conquered the world. Near, nearly conquered the world, and we had to do a world war to tamp them back down again. And now mm-hmm. we're seeing it start to rise again. So we have to start analyzing that stuff again. And I think Taika Waititi is unbelievably wise about his choice of subject matter Mm -hmm. about the tone he chose to approach it with I know it was based on a book I'm not sure how much of I'm not sure how funny the book is or or came from the book Um, but also he's just pursuing his own interests as a comedian because he's a comedic filmmaker and to make a a comedy that is this refreshingly sophisticated Mm -hmm. is such a rare pleasure that I walked out of this just kind of elated. Yeah. And now, I just saw this this morning, so I might be a little oh, high well, on it. Oh, well, that's soon. Okay. I saw it a week ago, right. and um, I, feel, I feel the same way. Um, right. You know, when you watch Taika, I just did an article for The Wrap where I looked over Taika Waititi's whole filmography as a director. Uh-huh. And, um, and I realized that Hunt for the Wilder People, Boy, and Jojo Rabbit are all of a piece. Uh-huh. And they're all about young boys who are looking for larger-than-life father figures. Mm. And Hunt for the Wilder People, I think, is the one that feels the most happy and hopeful because the boy actually finds a good one. Uh-huh. But in Boy, Taika Waititi plays his like father who is a, a man-child and an idiot and shouldn't be a mentor to a houseplant, let alone a child. Mm. Uh, and here he, he plays Hitler. <laughs> and both of them are terrible role models. Right. And it's about, you know, he has a, such a respect for his young characters. He casts his young actors hmm. so beautifully. There's this one kid with the glasses in Jojo Rabbit who oh, is... Oh, yeah, yeah. His comic timing is as good as mm. any adult actor I have ever really? seen. But, He's hilarious. There's a bit where uh, uh, Jojo runs into that boy on the street and like grabs his uniform. And this was at the end of the war... Germany had run out of resources. The uniforms were made of paper at that point. That's why we don't have them anymore. Yeah. And he's like, oh, and look, you have your new uniform. Crinkle, crinkle. It's this paper. And the boy sublimely just says, well, it's, and he holds up his fingers. It's 
paper-like. <laughs> it's the new. It's a new science it's, we developed from the Nazi yeah. home camp. And he looks so tired of like having to explain that. God. Jesus. Um, I would love to see this. I would love to see Taika Waititi direct a Daniel Pinkwater adaptation. Mm. Daniel Daniel Pinkwater is a children's author from. I know you. Mo- love most him. I love him. Like, yeah, he's, he he's up a my lot. favorites, but. Uh, Kind of a cult figure otherwise, I think. He was on NPR a lot. Um, yeah. And he wrote stories about uh, young children who are essentially finding agency without adults. Yeah. Not in that we're going to take over the world sort of way, you know, that kind of military way we see in a lot of modern young adult fiction. But in the, I'm going to go out into the city and I'm going to save up my pennies. I'm going to try this restaurant that's always looked really interesting. I'm going to go out into the I'm going to go to this theater and discover a movie that nobody's ever heard of. It's about discovering the world on your own. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a, one of my favorite books of his is about kids who stay up all night and discover nightlife for the first time. <laughs> What's open in the middle of the night when you're 14. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of sensibility Taika Waititi has. It's about, he's so canny about giving you the kids perspective and not making them like they're naive, but he's not looking down on them. Yeah, no, they have a lot to, like Jojo mm. rabbit doesn't. And there's a reason he has that nickname, but mm. Jojo isn't like a, so many kid protagonists are wise beyond their years. Yeah, they talk like many adults. Yeah, Jojo isn't. Mm-hmm. He's believed everything people have told him. Oh. Uh-huh. Because no one told him anything different. And, yeah, and when he meets a Jewish person for the first time, gasp and horrors, he thinks all of those weird stories about them being monsters are true, so he starts asking about those stories. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, it doesn't like take very him... very earnestly. And it doesn't take him too long. It takes him a bit, it doesn't, it's not like immediate, but mm-hmm. it doesn't take him too long to realize that now that I have personal experience, I realize I need to question everything I've been told. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that Jojo Rabbit dramatizes that that's not a quick transition. Yeah. And he's going to go back and forth and he's going to make some mistakes. There's one mistake he makes. I think it's fair to call it a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right near the end of the movie. Okay. That broke my goddamn heart. Oh. <laughs> it's like after normally in any other movie, he would have learned all of his lessons by now and everything would be super great. He almost does something so bad <laughs> that I would not have been able to forgive him for, but fortunately it comes it comes all together again. Mm. Anyway, Jojo Rabbit is a really excellently crafted, funny, serious, it'll make you cry. There's at least one scene that I did not see coming that just blew oh. my mind. Um, it's a really excellent motion picture, mm. and I hope people go see it. Um, and mm. on the darker side of things... You mean there's on the an, awesome side of things. There's, a, there's another art house movie <laughs> opening this weekend. It's going to expand later. Mm-hmm. Um, from the director of The Witch. That uh, that lighthearted comedy. Uh, the Witch is a horror movie that I it's it's kind of the ultimate art house horror movie, I think, of the decade, where they just tried to recreate colonial life amongst uh, pilgrims who were so conservative minded, so so religious. That the other pilgrims kicked them out. Kicked them out, and they have to move to the edge of the woods, and there may or may not be a creature in the woods stalking them. And or suspic- it might just be their own fanaticism, yes. getting the best of them. And- Suspicion and famine end up driving them completely out of their minds. Yeah, um, it's impeccably crafted. Like it, he did, he did his research. It's yeah. as historically it's- accurate as it possibly could be. More than anything, he really pays attention to language, and I think the director's name is Robert Eggers, and he uh, he. He's clearly interested in the evolution of English mm-hmm. and the way people used to speak and the way people speak now, because I've now seen two films of his where he's chosen to set them in worlds where the language is a little different. It's not just shop talk, yeah. but pe- the way people spoke and their actual syntax and their actual pronunciation 
uh, comes from an earlier point in the language's evolution. Yeah. So uh, the witch was set in this early like 1630s, I think. Around there, yeah. And yeah, it, it has this kind of very stagey pilgrim's English that is very classically infused and doesn't even sound like English on the surface. Like yeah. you have to pay attention and hearing that kind of decorative language in a film is so goddamn refreshing. Uh, it's, it, you feel like you're transported into another place, yeah, like yeah. more so than most other movies. It just, you're there. It might be uncomfortable to be there, but fortunately he makes horror movies. Yeah. I saw, so I you're saw, not supposed to be comfortable. I saw the witch and I saw a uh, Whit Stillman's love and friendship, like oh. kind of close to each other. And those are both films that took sort of, a lot of luxury in the way people speak. It was just such a great one to That's to a see neat double feature. Together. I yeah. like that. Um, so his new uh, film uh, is uh, pretty much a two-hander. There's like two other human beings you see briefly and another person you see in a dream. Mm. Uh, but it stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson as a pair of lighthouse keepers. I want to marry a lighthouse keeper. Okay. And keep them company. Mm. Uh, they're a pair of lighthouse keepers on an isolated, tiny little island with oh, nothing yeah. but an, a, a, a lighthouse and like a little cabin next to it. Mm. And they're there to maintain the light and keep, make sure the ships don't bump into things. And they end up getting stuck there for what could be days, what could be months or years. The movie starts getting a little fishy. <laughs> um Speaking of uh, t keeping each other company, they are the worst possible company for one another. Oh, my God. From the start, they just hate each other. Yeah. Uh, Willem Dafoe is an uncouth old salt who farts at every available <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> he's a little bit fascistic, but he's been running this lighthouse for a long time, so he knows exactly what needs to go down. So he's constantly barking orders at Robert Pattinson, who does not want to be there. Yeah. And all he wants to do is spend a little time relaxing, not get dirty, good luck. <laughs> not smell like shit, good luck. Drink fresh water, good luck, and maybe masturbate in peace every once in a while. There's so much masturbation. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a story about people who are isolated together, mm. who have no attraction to one another. There's no. one scene where they've been alone together for so long, it looks like they almost might make out, but then they <laughs> fight each other instead. Because <laughs> that's what men do. Um, but yeah, they acknowledge that they've been alone for a long time. They're still biological organisms mm. with urges. A significant amount of this movie, like at least... Two and a half percent of the movie <laughs> is them masturbating. Like a measurable yeah, percentage yeah. is is one or more mm. of them masturbating, just because they're so bored and alone. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, movie makes the most of that. Uh, well, and and we do realize that when it comes to the human meat that had to take care of these big lighthouses to keep ships aloft, it it really was just a, a grist type of position that you can either embrace in a Sisyphusian sort of way. Yeah. Or go be completely driven mad by, or both. Yeah, it, it turns uh, yeah. out that Willem Dafoe could have been fine with this, but he's there for so long. Mm. In fact, he's he, getting driven mad. At night, like they, and the lighthouse needs to be tended 24 hours a day, so one of them has a day shift, one of them has a night shift. They actually don't have a lot of time during the day together. Yeah, but each other in the morning and, and for dinner. Their time apart is spent in total seething resentment for the other. Mm -hmm. Uh and at night, Willem Dafoe, who has keys to the upper loft within, like, where the light actually is in the lighthouse, yeah. he sneaks up there, strips naked, and falls into this weird sort of, like, religious fugue state where he, like, sees God in the light. 
And, and as and, a result, and, he doesn't let Robert Pattinson And he doesn't let there, Robert Pattinson get up there for that reason. Even though technically you're supposed to be doing double shifts. Right. Yeah. Uh, there is a supporting character. It's a snippy seagull who makes, <laughs> I like makes think, life uh, hell for Robert Pattinson. I like to think it's the same seagull from The Shallows, Steven Seagull. Oh, I didn't see the shallows. You didn't see the shallows. Was there a snippy seagull in that? Yeah, one like too? Blake Lively gets stranded on a rock, and there's mm-hmm. a man eating sharks circling, and she's bleeding, so she can't take a swim for it. And her only company is a seagull that she names Stephen. Oh, like Stephen Seagull. That's cute. Yeah. That's a good movie. You should see that sometime. Yeah, it, it looked all right. It's one of the better shark movies. Um, <laughs> this, the lighthouse. You know, it's it seems just like a serious drama. It's like the witch. It seems like mm. a serious drama. And then as time goes on, and human nature takes over, and they're sort of there's a, a quote-unquote nor'easter mm. like an ongoing extended hurricane just keeps beating down on them and time just sort of loses all meaning <laughs> and there's they have things like did you, well did you did you do the thing i was like mm. what you did tell me that five minutes ago i told you that two weeks ago even though we as the audience just saw that in the scene but we see like, them we do know. things we see them do things to each other and then tell each other the other one did it and i don't know if they're mad or if the movie is mad. Mm. Or Either if, way, it's fascinating. Or if one of them is trying to manipulate the other for some yeah. reason just to assert some kind of masculine power over the, them. The thing is that isolation and bitterness and and just discomfort mm. takes such a toll on them that it doesn't even matter what's real anymore. What matters is how horrible mm. they're able to yeah. get to each other. And it turns <laughs> out spectacularly horrible. Yeah, yeah. I hate I hate your goddamn farts. I I, <laughs> I, I imagine that uh, Robert Pattinson especially had to do a lot of language research because he has one of those weird, like mm-hmm. via Bill the Butcher type accents, mm-hmm. like an early American American accent that just doesn't exist any longer. Uh, and yeah, just hearing them speak, and of course Willem Dafoe is perfect as an old salt who talks like a pirate and spews out sea poetry before dinner every night. Uh, that I'm getting sort of lost in, in their language as well as their cruelty. Yeah. At the same time, the film is shot in a beautiful 137 a- Academy aspect ratio. For you don't know, if you don't know where, what that means, the mm, screen is a square. Uh, almost a square. It's basically it's, it's a like square. A, a just, yeah. Um, n- not, not gigantic widescreen. And, and it's shot in the most glorious black and white photography. Holy crap. Where everything is just textured and you can scent this... You can feel the salty water on everything. I'm, I'm going to say this right now. It's too early to call anything the best movie of the year. I know mm. people have started. Some people start beginning of the year. Yeah. We try not to do that. If there is more impressive cinematography this year, I will be astonished. Mm. Yaron Blaschke is the cinematographer here. He also worked on The Witch. Okay. Um, this is some of the most stunning black and white photography I've ever seen in my yeah, entire yeah. life. My entire life. Like, like some of the most every, incredible imagery. I know a lot of uh, this is something I've, a lot of critics say about really gorgeous looking films. Every frame is a painting. I mean, they they actually bother to photograph this thing, so every frame looks like it could be hung on the wall. Yeah, uh, just the the way they're able to capture light and texture and filth yeah. is just so exhilarating. This has my three favorite things: the three M's. Mud, misery, and madness. Uh, <laughs> Can you write a book called that, please? Mud, misery, and madness. The Whitney Seibold story. The Witch had those things too. Yeah. One of my favorite horror movies earlier this year, Hagazusa, that also had all those things. Yeah. Just watching people sink into the dirt, both 
physically and philosophically is such an exhilarating story. And I admire this film. This film knows, I mean, it's gorgeous, mm. but it's also not prone to a lot of trickery. It just frames things well and it'll mm. linger on them. There's, there's a shot where uh, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are having yet another drunken argument. Oh. And uh, all one the, of many, one of many, but this, you'll know the one I'm talking about. Yeah. It's one where uh, Robert Pattinson, like after everything, refuses to say that he likes Willem Dafoe's cooking. Mm. And Willem Dafoe's like, "Oh come on, you like the cooking though, right?" But he says in that great crag, he sounds like Popeye's don't, father. Well, don't don't you like my cooking blood? Yeah, I know you like the lobster. <laughs> and uh, when he refuses to even give him that much, yeah. refuses to even give him that much yeah. of a compliment, Willem Dafoe stands up and the camera lowers, and it's just Willem Dafoe. Cursing Robert Pattinson in a way you have never heard anyone curse. <laughs> and the most ominous, threatening, the sea will take you away. Into and the down into David Jones' locker. Like, yeah. yeah, but like, but in the most threatening, horrible the way. He's, the way he's lit, he looks all ghoulish. Yeah. yeah. And it ends with a joke and it's hilarious. But like, that shot of Willem Dafoe is one of the most threatening shots you'll ever find in a movie. I, I hope they play that at the Oscars. Oh, that's his... <laughs> like uh, Will, Willem Dafoe is up for best actor or supporting actor. He'd be up for supporting actor. He'd be a, he'd be great. Just play that whole clip of him just cursing out Robert Pattinson. I, I'm actually dead serious. It, I would not be surprised if this weekend we saw the future winner of best supporting actor and best supporting actress between Scarlett mm. Johansson and Willem Dafoe. Perhaps I yeah. would not be shocked because yeah. these are incredible performances. Robert mm. Pattinson's fantastic as well; he always is. Mm. Um, yeah, this is an incredible movie. It's scary without being like conventionally horrifying in a lot of ways. It just mm. really makes you uncomfortable, and the imagery is fucked up. So, a shot of a uh, there's he, uh, Pattinson envisions a mermaid. I'm not going to mm. ruin it for you. There's a shot of a mermaid I've never seen before that makes so much sense, <laughs> but is so disgusting <laughs> that really mm. freaked me out. But it's Really, Brian. Um, yeah, what a fucking movie. <laughs> it's just exactly. What a fucking movie, it's, man. It's f- like, I, I was just so enervated by this film. It was just so... Uplifting is the wrong word, but just elevating. It it was just such an astonishing aesthetic experience. It's the kind of thing I hope I feel when I see a a good horror movie or just a good drama. Yeah. It's Uh, it's one of my favorites of the year, no doubt. uh, So on the critical... We're we're done. These are Mm. movie reviews. uh, And we review all our films on the critically acclaimed scale. Mm. That scale is from C- to C+. Yes. Someone, uh, was someone, uh, one of our friends pointed who just started listening to the podcast, uh, said, "You know there are other letters, right? <laughs> yes, we do, but we don't want to be one of those like podcasts where you can like throw an A plus on a poster. We don't right. want to sell out that bad. <laughs> if you want to quote us, fine, quote us, but don't mm. just throw an A plus and make it seem like that's okay. So C is average, mm. average movie. Most movies are average. C minus is below average. Everything from just not very good to the worst thing ever, mm. and C plus is above average. Everything from pretty darn good to the best thing ever." The Lighthouse, big ol' C+. <laughs> C+, for sure. What a I, movie. I, I love it so much. If you if you like The Witch, I think you're going to really love this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you didn't like The Witch, you might not like this. <laughs> this is a heavy experience. This is a heavy experience, but it's mm-hmm. a hell of a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, um, another C+. Also a C+. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just re- really fascinating, good, funny comedy. It just, I'm just amazed he pulled it off without <laughs> yeah. airballing a single scene. Mm-hmm. Not a single scene goes, goes wrong. Yeah. Really a tricky feat. Really impressive. Um, okay, Eli. Uh, C-minus. I've seen worse horror movies, but it just gets progressively dumber with every scene. Uh, I don't that, recommend it. That's a pity. Uh, what was it? Yeah, um, Zombie, Zombieland 2. Zombieland is... it. This is just C, and yeah. it's never going to be anything else. Uh, if you're a huge uh, fan of Zombieland, 
the original Zombieland, and you just want to visit the characters again, this might be a C plus to you. Mm. But I think for everyone else, this is an enjoyable but largely forgettable zombie comedy. Yeah. I don't have anything particularly wrong with it other than doesn't really feel like you ever need to see this. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. But it is funny, so I'll give Mm. it that. Um, And then Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. (laughs) A title which makes no sense. (laughs) She's, She's nobody's mistress, let alone someone evil. She's not evil. I don't understand the title. The main title makes no sense. She well, her name is Maleficent, so you know, which is various w- yeah. word roots in there that dictate evil. But she's not. Yeah, <laughs> I don't understand it. Anyway, big old C minus. Uh, really stupid motion picture. Like a really <laughs> stupid motion picture, and I do not recommend it at all. I want to see that on the poster. Hey, listen, a listen, really stupid motion picture. This might be the kind of movie you can watch because it's so dumb. Like it starts out okay. Mm. But about halfway through it, you'll realize this, much like Eli, this is just getting progressively stupider <laughs> with every passing moment. Yeah, and it's it's pretty embarrassing. Um, although the cast co- comes away Scott clean. They, they're great. Right. Um, and that is it. That is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, we actually recorded this one a little early for once. You know, we usually record these things late Sunday night. Sunday, sometimes midday Monday, we so, get around to these things. So if anything happened on Saturday or Sunday, and we didn't, we're just, it seems mm. weird that we didn't mention it. So just want to let you know. We're, we're just, we banked this one a little bit, so yeah. we're, we, the show is just a little behind. Yeah, so if anything crazy happened, we'll get mm. to it another time. But um, yeah, that's the reviews. Next week, we'll be back with reviews uh, like Countdown, a new horror movie about an app that knows when you're going to die. Mm. I saw a preview for this one. <laughs> it looks deliriously <laughs> it looks, dumb. It looks pretty dumb. Um, it could be the greatest ever. No, good. no. Whenever we say things, oh, that looks stupid or it looks bad. That's what we. That's all we mean. It looks bad. That doesn't mean we expect it to be bad. Um, and then there's a new thriller which I believe is called Black and Blue. Yeah, with Naomi Harris. Yep, that's coming out next week as well, and a few other things. Um, you know, we're gearing towards. The end of the year, studios are starting to unleash a ton of independence and genre fare, so mm. uh, there's bound to be more than that, but we'll yeah. at least do those two. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess that's about that. Am I forgetting anything? No, I think that's about that. Cool. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to uh, email us, we'll answer your letters on our new show, We've Got Mail. Uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Do you have any questions about something mm-hmm. we talked about today? Uh, you want to refute our critiques and we'll have a t- we'll have a discussion about it. We'll happily read your letter on the air. Uh, or if you just want to talk about ridiculous nonsense, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash criticacclaim. And if you go to our Patreon, you'll get a ton of exclusive content, uh, including uh, podcasts about every single Best Picture nominee in history, podcast about every single Star Trek episode ever. We're, we need to record a new one of those in the next couple of days. Yeah, it, it's coming. Uh, okay. Uh, just reminding you. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We're going to be doing Jupiter Ascending soon. Um, we have a whole bunch of cool stuff coming in the pipeline. Some, we still can't announce it yet. Some, some things we still can't announce. But, but we're yeah. super excited about it. We can't mm. wait to tell you. Um, can, I, can I hawk my show? Please hawk your uh, show. Although uh, you're running out of show hawkings. Uh, 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 it's got to be cut off eventually. It's going to be cut off eventually, but right. you know, it's, it's only been a few weeks, so it's fine. just make sure everybody has one. I, right. I, I, for I, people who listen to all of our podcasts, you've heard this. You've spiel, heard the spiel a couple times, but I, I did author a, a thirty-minute audio drama with a, a cast and music and sound effects, the whole schmear. I wrote it myself and directed it, and it's maybe not dumb. Uh, <laughs> you've had some good compliments. I've seen some people. So, on yeah, some, some people it. really liked it. Uh, it's called the Tenth Muse, and it's a it has a time traveling lesbian punk bar. I talk 
talking crab and some ancient poetry in it just for good measure. Uh, contact me on social media however you can. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Just contact me out of the blue. It's fine. And uh, you can PayPal me or Venmo me and I can email you an MP3 and you can enjoy that 30-minute radio program, The Tenth Muse, that I wrote. That's cool, man. And I, really I, cool. I liked making it so much, I'm making another. So you'll get some more of those pretty soon. That's awesome, dude. Um, cool. All right. So, and again, next week, a bunch of movie reviews. Be sure to stick around the channel uh, because we've got, uh, we, we just did um, a review of Jekyll for our Ghastly Tober seri- uh, season on Cancel Too Soon. We're doing Tremors the series as well. We got our letters episode. We got the two shot over there in the Schmoes No Network. We just did Candyman and we're about to do Critters and we're very excited about all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no shortage of us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And uh, I guess that's that. Never forget, everybody. Everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>